You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome, all you weirdos, Krakoan refugees, and everyone else who enjoys drinking in the woods. As always, we remain the mutant member of your Weird Science podcast family. I am your recuperated host, Jason, broadcasting from the wrong turn studio high atop stately Weird Science Tower. And here with me once again is my man, Ruben. Hey, Ruben, how do you feel now that you no longer have control of the audio drops? How dare you! It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> How dare you? I was gonna say I'm quite, I'm quite sad. <laughs> but these books are not bad, so I, I will cheer up as the yeah, guest. Yeah, we got goes some on. pretty good books this week. Uh, for, for the most part, maybe, uh, maybe we'll each have one or two we're not as crazy about. But yeah, it is, it, it is good to be back. I had a, a fantastic time out in my uh, the charity event out there in the woods of northern New Hampshire. Uh, had. A lot of really good mead. Are you a, are you a, are you a mead fan, Ruben? Into the meads? No? no. I think it's really funny that that's the one thing that you're super into. There, your list of like microbrews looked really good. So hopefully you weren't just drinking mead, but I I try uh, a little bit of everything. But it, it's crazy. <laughs> uh, so really good homebrew beer is about as good as really really good commercial beer. Okay, right? Yeah. Like there's. And, and there's mind? a much wider range, of course. Okay. Like, there's some pretty bad homebrew. There's some pretty good homebrew. You know, commercial beer is usually more consistent, but homebrew has, has a wider range. Now, mead, almost all the best meads I've ever had came out of like a, a dusty bottle with Sharpie red on it, you know. So it's, for, for whatever reason, mead on, on a homebrew scale seems to do better than, than most of the commercial meads I've had. So that's why I tend to, to sample those a little more at event like Yeah. I, I can't say I have a huge experience or a lot of experience with mead, but what I've had is a little too sweet for my taste. Yep, there's certainly a, a range of sweetness, and that's a whole other podcast. I'm, I'm not going to fall down that rabbit hole because we have some comic books to talk about this week. I don't know if you remember that. But yeah, so today, oh, first of all, thanks, Ruben, and uh, thanks to Matt and Razor for filling in last week while I was away. Yes. It was an experience getting to listen to the podcast. It was, you know, it was strange. I kept wanting to interrupt and you know interject my own thoughts, and that doesn't really work so well when it's pre-recorded. Yeah. Well, I have a lot more appreciation for what you do now that I had to sort of lead a cast. And I will say what Matt didn't realize is now he is the go-to backup for both of us. <laughs> he is. He is the Joan Rivers of this podcast, for sure. And one week we'll both be gone and we'll have to ask him to solo cast. <laughs> I'm sure he would do fantastic. He uh, he has the, the voice for the podcast. And he does. He knows his stuff. So I was going to make the joke that obviously we have the same voice, right? Like, oh, sorry. Sorry, hosts. <laughs> you won't be able to tell who's talking because I have, like, I think a really whiny, obnoxious voice. No. Matt, you no. sound cool. I sound like a dope, but. <laughs> I thought it sounded great. Anyways, yeah. It was fun talking to him, but I'm, I'm definitely happy that you're back as well. It, it's, it's nice to have a break once in a while. That was the, the first episode of this podcast that I haven't been on. No. So that was, that was kind of weird. And the only other week, the only week we haven't had a podcast is about a year plus ago when I was in Florida. And we had a lightning storm and knocked out all the power and the internet. That was the only thing that kept us from publishing. So, no, uh, no lightning this week. Uh, we're going to talk about Iceman number two, X Men Red number fifteen, X Force number forty-four. That's a high number. And Children of the Vault, or as I like to call them, the Vault Babies, number two. So we're going to start off with Astonishing Iceman number two of five, Out Cold Part Two. I wonder what next issue will be called. Uh, written by Steve Orlando, and, and boy, is it ever. Uh, art by Vincenzo Caratu. Uh, colors by Java Tartaglia. Letters by Travis Lanham. Designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. Now, now, Ruben I, Ruben, I don't think you were here the last time we talked about issue one of the series. Am I correct, or am I, is that still my, uh, the, the mead kicking in? It's the mead. Yeah, I think I talked about it. I didn't have too much to say. Okay. You were basically explaining the Romeo bobby drake relationship to me because i wasn't familiar with it right right so yeah in, in this series steve orlando is is clearly going for a bronze age 1980s kind of feel which is a fun idea and could be kind of a little empty and disposable depending on what he does with it so let's see how this issue goes uh we start off with a, a retelling of part of bobby's origin story this part comes straight out of x-men number 44 from 1968 there was a, a stretch of issues there where there's backup stories detailing the origins of all the original five, and this was Bobby's talk. 
So Bobby and his girlfriend Judy Harmon being hassled by Rocky, not that Rocky, and some other bullies is established canon, and, and much of the dialogue even comes from the original. In that old book, Bobby gets rescued by Cyclops, which is, you know, cut out here because this is an Iceman book. We don't want to see Cyclops still in the spotlight. In the current day part of the story, Orcus is still trying to lure Iceman out where they can grab him. This time using a bunch of metal men knockoffs called the Elements of Doom to attack Bobby's hometown and threaten his mom. The main villain is Helium, and Helium should be a tough opponent for Iceman since Helium essentially doesn't have a freezing point. It stays liquid all the way down to zero Kelvin, unless you get into like really high pressures. Again, that's that's my physics podcast. Uh, oh, and since Orcas are trying to maintain their new positive reputation, the elements pretend that they've been sent by the Sapien League, not Orcas. The Sapien League were an anti-mutant group who made a handful of appearances in the mid-2000s, right after the whole no more mutants thing. So Bobby shows up, of course, even though he has to leave the warm embrace of Romeo the Inhuman. Uh, Bobby sends his army of snow golems off to deal with most of the elements off-panel, but sticks around to fight Helium and rescue his mother in person. Uh, Bobby can't directly freeze Helium, so he creates a giant ice spire that shoots Helium into space. Now this was, I guess, like the Iceman equivalent of Superman throwing someone into the sun, except not quite all the way to the sun. So what did you, uh, what did you think of the the, the fight and the the basic plot? I sped through this in maybe five minutes. It, it didn't hold my attention that much, and it was fine. I mean, it, there was a lot of talk about how. This is the perfect foil for Bobby Drake and that he's unstoppable. And then he very easily stopped him, which kind of made me roll my eyes. <laughs> Just sum it up, yeah. Yeah. He's like, you can't freeze me, you can't freeze me. And then he's like, okay, great. I'm going to put you in a, I guess, a rocket ship, an ice rocket, and just throw you into space at the end. Yeah, it was very a uh, Wonder Twins form of an ice rocket. So, yeah, it's, it's a pretty basic story. Bobby does get to tell off his old bully, who's now the mayor. He has a nice moment with his mom. Uh, there's a bit where at the end when Bobby crumbles into snowflakes and his mom is at first horrified, but then she's fine and somehow knows that he's okay. That was an odd, an odd transition there. It was like, ah, like, oh, oh, whatever. Uh, Bobby does reappear in his fortress of isitude where Romeo's inhuman power, again, it, it's very unclear how this works. He's, it is that the power of love reconstitutes Bobby somehow. Yeah. Now, I was, I spent maybe five minutes about the same amount of time I spent reading this trying to figure out what the heck's going on with Romeo and his yeah. powers. Well, doesn't make sense to me. If you read Gabe's reviews over on the website, Gabe is, is quite convinced that this isn't really Bobby, that this is somehow Romeo's power manifesting a fake Bobby, and at some point it'll be real to be just not really him. Personification Which of I think Bobby that would Drake. make the story a whole lot more interesting than it is, but I'm, I'm less convinced this issue. I don't think we saw Bobby out of his iced-up form in issue one. Well, we do see him in, you know, regular flesh blood look in this issue. So I think that argues against that idea. But again, that's the most interesting possibility. And I'm, I'm kind of sad to say mm, I'm less convinced it might be an actual thing. Yeah. Well, they could just also kill off Romeo and then he's gone. Well, I mean, there is a, a final scene here setting up that next bad guy, right? For two issues, we've had Orca's agent Pequod saying over and over again, gee, I hope we don't have to use the cleaner. Boy, it would be bad if we had to use the cleaner. So, yeah. I mean, of course, yeah, we're going to get the cleaner. Uh, I thought it might last until like the fifth issue, but we're going to get him in issue number three. And I thought this was going to be a new character, but Steve Orlando loved to bring back obscure heroes and villains from the deep, dark recesses of the Marvel fandom wiki. And the cleaner turns out to be Paul Botham, or maybe Botham, a.k.a. Mr. Clean, a human villain created by Joe Casey and Ian Churchill in 2001 and who has previously only been seen in one arc of Uncanny X-Men, starting in issue 395. The wiki tells me that Mr. Clean has chemically hardened skin that makes him impervious to even Wolverine's claw. And it shows him using a flamethrower, which is probably why Steve Orlando decided he'd be good for uh, ice. <laughs> he's he's a kind of a basic guy, Steve Orlando. Fire, <laughs> ice, checks the box. Uh, now, yeah. Mr. Clean was also listed on a data page in House of X, number four, it was a, a data page that was like a list of humans who have committed major mutant crime. Like Scarlet Witch was there, Molotov mm -hmm. Trask was there, and Mr. Clean was there, and he was listed as having killed 147. So not Scarlet Witch level to be sure, but you know, still a bad guy that mutants would know about. So are you are you excited to see a uh, uh, Mr. Clean slash the Cleaner slash Paul Botham show up in the next issue? No, there's something about this series that just feels inconsequential. Like 
it I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't, it. it doesn't feel like it, it feels again like he's going for this tone of those the 80s feel to it, but it feels light and disposable. And you know, if you, if you like hanging out with Bobby and Romeo and it, it it's fine, but it's just kind of kind of weightless. Which is weird because even the the cleaner scenes, he seems like a pretty brutal serial killer type. Yeah. Sure. The, the pages are like gory, but he himself doesn't seem that threatening to me. Like I have no belief that he's actually a threat to Bobby at all. Yeah, in, in the book, he just seems kind of like a, a basic dude who likes at least he likes the stabbing, likes the killing. But oh well. So yeah, a pretty forgettable issue for me. Although uh, artist Vincenzo Caruto offers, I think, a pretty high class version of the Marvel house style and the visuals. We get that nice flowing, swirling feeling of that fight between Iceman and Helium. It would have been fun to see his take a little more on those other elements who here only show up in like a pale and a half. Could have been more colorful too, since Iceman versus Helium is just a lot of gray and white with a little blue thrown in, so it was kind of dull color-wise. Yeah, overall, not great, not terrible. Like you say, not that important. We're going to keep checking in on Bobby, but for now, I'm going to give this issue a maybe generous 6 out of 10. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, that's basically where I was at. I, If you're a fan of Bobby... I suppose this would be fun to read, but I'm not, I guess. <laughs> That's sort of what this issue taught me. And everything is just kind of like unnecessary, I guess. It doesn't really... I, I don't even believe that the Orcus in this series is really the Orcus that we've seen. That's an interesting point because they created a new Orcus villain and they have him reported to Orcus, but we don't see any other Orcus stuff going on. And I think a, a common theme you're going to hear from me this episode is that I'd like to see more continuity like horizontal continuity between the different titles. This is all supposed to be happening at basically the same time, and over and over again, like, well, why don't they talk to that people, and why doesn't that team call that team? I, I know the all the writers are trying to do their own thing, but it would be nice to have a, a little more cross-pollinization. Okay, moving on to our second issue, uh, which maybe we'll like a little more. This is X-Men Red, number 15, Nothing and Nobody, written by Al Ewing, art by Yildere Chenar, Colors by Federico Blee, letters by Ariana Mayer, design once again by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So this issue takes place in two distinct time periods. In the present, we see some forward progress in that war between Genesis and Storm, and we get flashbacks to the Fisher King's early days in the abyssal prisons of Amenth. Now this is a part of Iraqi history I've always been intrigued and also confused by, I'm glad to see it shown on panel for, I'm, I'm pretty sure, the first time. Have we ever seen these prisons before? I think we may have seen a prison, but not really what was going on in the prisons. We've had not references to, to it, data pages, people talk about it. And uh, yeah, I'm not really, I'm, I'm really not very confident I know where this fits and what's going on. Ruben, can you enlighten us a little bit? Yeah, sure. And I was not either. <laughs> when you when you assigned this homework to me, I was like, oh, yeah, I know this. And then I started reading a lot up. And I was like, oh, that's what's going on? I really, <laughs> I guess I wasn't paying yeah. enough attention. There's or a lot the of puzzle pieces scattered about, but they've never been put together. Yeah. Yeah. So as far as I could tell, roughly, there was Okara, which was the combined Arako and um, Krakoa. Krakoa. And Genesis and Apocalypse lived there, and they had the original Horseman kids. And then the Amenthi demons from the dimension of Amenth somehow burst onto Earth yeah, and some were attacking. Yeah, from Otherworld. That's what I think. No, no, not Otherworld. That's, Isn't that's that the first. Of, I thought, I thought no, Amenth no, no. was a subset of Otherworld. No. Otherworld no. connects to all the dimensions, so that's okay. how they eventually connect. So the Amenthi from Amenth break onto Earth and are attacking, and Genesis... I guess, fights them back a little bit. Then Amenth, the Lord, the Mask, right? Whoever he's possessing at the time shows up with the Sword of Twilight, cuts um, Krako and Arako apart. Mm -hmm. And the Okari, I guess is what you would call them, plus Genesis, all of them push the demons through the portal back into Amenth. And the only person left is uh, Abinsur, and they close the gate. So that was the original Iraqi, right? Arako and all right, of them. That pushed. was like their their origin story that we saw back in X of Tens. Yes. So then their their whole race is in a month fighting like a demon horde. Right. As soon as they get there, ten percent of the people go crazy and flee into like the demon world wastelands for whatever reason. And those people are captured by Arako, the demon lord, and his demon kin, and he breeds them. And the 
children of those people are the summoners. So the oh, white skin okay. naked naked dudes okay. that can like knew, summon knew demonic that. stuff. That makes sense. Yeah. So the other ninety percent that are still fighting, they set up strongholds, those are those towers that get built in Menth. And from there they kind of stabilize the war, but they can never actually win it. And and this is when the white sword kind of goes off and does his own thing and yeah yeah so and I should say the main mass of the I should say at some point I think it's before they shut the gates down but Iska who's Genesis's sister she flips so she's like a you know part of them at the demon horde and then the white sword I think is one of I think he either is initially with Genesis or he he is part of the ten percent that leaves but regardless he leaves himself so he has his own enclave and then Genesis. Although they've got a stalemate, she gets like a prophecy from one of her seers that says, like, you'll eventually fall. And she's like, that's bullshit. I'm not going to fall. So she convenes like, a, like we're going to take it to the Amenth, right, kind of group. And they ride out to fight Amenth, but instead they meet up with White Sword. And for whatever reason, I don't think he's part of the Demon Horde, but he decides that he's going to fight her. And he like gives her her first big defeat. And so then she has to retreat back to Yeah, he's like a, a breakaway faction off on his own. I don't think he's with the demons, but he's also not going to, you know, salute to Genesis herself. So she gets her butt kicked, goes back to the towers, and then at that point, Iska shows up and says, hey, um, Amenth is willing to, like, duel with you, and the winner takes all, right? So she's like, well, that sounds good. So she goes and fights Amenth, defeats him, and then at this point, the de- all the demons that were under his control are kind of like Berserker, right? Right. And so she, that's when she takes on the annihilation when it was a so mass. Apparently, right? So apparently she holds out for a hundred years, which that part seems kind of weird to me, but she doesn't want to take on the helm. She doesn't want to take on the helm. But then the horde that's kind of going berserk starts to take over some of their towers. And then at that point, that's when the towers connect to other worlds seeking for help. So they open a portal to try to ask for help from the other world people and they're still losing and then genesis is like well i can't lose so i'm going to put on this helmet to control the demon horde and that's when she then becomes possessed okay so because the people open the portal to other world then she conquers the remaining towers then at this point they um create these prisons which we see in this issue of x-men red and apparently tarn is one of the he's either a summoner or he's a child of the summoner so he's always been part of like the Amenthi demon horde type. Okay. And so he's put in charge of like running these prisons. And the point of these prisons is to suppress any Iraqi mutants that have any desire to like rebel against the, the Genesis annihilation demons. So horde. he's kind of working for Genesis, almost like a, like a, like a, like a gulag for dissident Iraqi. Correct. Correct. Yep. After Genesis is like, Genesis with the Annihilation Helm on has conquered like all of the Iraqi and they are now deciding to wage war against Otherworld. And yeah, so then they, so he runs the, Satarn runs the like prisons to suppress anyone that's going to rebel against them from within to keep that nation under control. Okay. And then we know. I can see that like a totalitarian prison camp for for people who aren't going along with the, the, the government. Yes. And then we get the story of um, the X of Swords story, right? Where the now Annihilation Army horde with Genesis in charge is, is did, raiding did into Otherworld. Did the go away before that? Or did the prisons only stop after X of Ten? After X of Tens. Oh, huh, okay. Yeah. So basically, they, they, they invade Otherworld, and then Saturnine creates that, you know, whatever, the the tur- sword tournament, and then mm-hmm. one of the summoners shows up in Araco, and all that happens. Blah, blah, and the blah. big island ends up back in the real world. Yes, and all the things yes. that still happen. Okay, so the prisons lasted a, a really long time, but I didn't realize that they had come so close up to the present day. So that that explains why they're still very much present in the minds of people who are you know, part of that. Correct. One thing I, I really didn't understand until I did this kind of research was just the idea that people like Fisher King are actually relatively new right like all the stuff with like iska betrayal and you know pre pre month like that's I mean, generations before his time because mm-hmm. all that stuff was mm-hmm. supposed to be like mm-hmm. thousands of years in the past right and this was like you know within 50 years of the present interesting yeah that so really it's kind of weird talks and about also, what their mindset is like yeah and then i also didn't quite realize that like tarn was because i think at one point you'd ask me like what's the tarn genesis relationship why would she even be pissed that you know, when she found out that he was killed. Right. He actually married Iska, which I didn't realize. Yeah, I remember she was really upset when he got killed in the 
the arena, the ring, whatever that that ritual fight is called. So that explains why that was happening, That's and then also couple. also kind of funky because she was one of the original ones, right? Like she was like three thousand years old by the time. <laughs> Problematic age in. gap, as we yes. say. Yeah, <laughs> and then the uh, yeah, and then Tarn was born closer to these like prison era, so he's like roughly I don't know, right? Like three thousand to fifty. <laughs> she likes him young, apparently. That's, that's middle age for Iraqi, I guess. <laughs> okay, that was that was really interesting. Very cool. That was some some good history of Iraqo. Uh, now let's let's jump to the the present day story. Uh, so the war between Genesis and the Brotherhood seems to kind of stagnated, kind of come to a standstill. Both sides control large areas of the planet, with some separate smaller chunks controlled by Iska and by the now Tarnless, you know, the rest of the Vile, neither of whom show up in this issue. We get a nice map of the maps, uh, and also it was kind of cool to see that the mutants Peeper and Hairbag are up at the Keep Space Station in orbit around Mars, and they're also, as you might guess, loyal to Storm. The station's sensors aren't working yet, but Peeper's eyes are. He has the, those Jeepers Creepers, where'd you get those crazy-looking eyes? So he gives Storm kind of satellite-esque intel via radio. That's kind of fun. So Fisher King predicts that Genesis will come at them via sea, specifically targeting a particular bay. And, you know, he's correct. Genesis brings her fleet of ships toward that bay, and we see just how dominated everyone with her is by that annihilation staff. I mean, Sobinar tries to put up some resistance, but he can't even manage all that much. There's uh, some, some new supporters with Genesis as well. I mean, not, not entirely new, though. We see Castor and Pollux, these two uh, ladies, they're... The two mutants we saw violently take over a London bar in Cable Number Ten. Remember them? Those two <laughs> no. kind of punk-looking gals. No, I, I don't. But that, yeah, there's so many yeah, characters. They, they, there's like a, a fight there, and it was part of the lead-up to G. We really need to do something with all these crazy rough Iraqi, and that's what led up to the whole. Well, let's send them to Mars idea. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. I I do remember that part where it was like their warlike society is not really gonna work with the way these two are part of that i don't know how they ended up right there with genesis but that's where they are i mean if they are the rough and tough types who really aren't great with this whole soft earth mutant idea it would make sense that they'd be on on genesis side and also joining the crew is satis exotica now he appeared in i think just one panel ever before in legion of x number one we saw him lying in the dirt, having just been defeated in the Iraqi version of the arena by somebody called Quarrel the Roarer. Uh, and in this issue of Red, we see his new weapon for the first time. Any creature who drinks his blood becomes like a supersized kaiju monster. And that's what happens. He drips some blood into the sea, and one of Sobinar's creatures drinks it, becomes like a, a biggie-sized version of the creature in the Black Lagoon. Which, that looked pretty cool. But what did you think of this creature? Yeah, it looked ferocious, and... The art in this issue is really cool. I, this it looks large, right? Like they did a great job showing the kind of the scale comes across. Yeah, yeah, like the the city on the port. I guess you can see it, right? And then the monster just looks freaking gigantic. Yeah, we've seen it in, in other parts of this long extended story, like in in uh, I think Immortal number one or two, we saw a big kaiju attack there, and. Some of them look better than others. This one is particularly scary. It turns out, though, that it's it's really more of a, a fake than anything else. Like, Storm really easily defeats it by dropping a huge pointy hailstone through its skull. Yes, so that's which is pretty badass. So that's the second ice-based fight of this week. <laughs> yeah. That's got a trend. Uh, but yeah, it was a trick, and one that the Fisher King sees through only a little bit too late. Genesis knew the creature would have no chance against Storm. So she hid an Okara gate seed in the beast. You remember where we first saw these seeds? The first time I remember was when she opened one on Mars, like in her during her return. But have we seen it before? Well, it was mentioned uh, she got that in the Before the Fall Heralds of Apocalypse one shot. Uh, Apocalypse had three of these seeds. Uh, he kept one. I think that's a shoe that's going to drop soon. The a second one is what Genesis used to get to Mars, and this here is the third of those seeds. So this seed feeds on blood. Here it feeds on this giant kaiju's blood. It forms a gate. And the cool thing about these gates is you don't need another seed on the other side. It makes a gate all by itself. This gate reaches all the way to the ivory spire of Amenth. And who's on the other side of that gate? Well, nobody Freaking good. Lord. <laughs> it's the four horsemen plus summoners, the white sword, and a whole bunch of demons. Yeah. And they're right there next to that storm in the brotherhood so they're in a kind of a bad spot 
Yes. Which is a, a cool cliffhanger, I thought. Did you like this little trick that uh, Genesis played? I thought it was really clever because they did a really good job talking about how, you know, when they first see the boat showing up and Storm's like, this is kind of weird. Like, why would you attack me when I can control the weather, right? And then we see the kaiju show up and it's like, oh, okay, well, they weren't attacking you. They were just there to bring this big kaiju out, right? And then, and then she's twist. still, and then she's still, you know, cleverly just wrecks it. And it looks pretty f- formidable. Like I said, it was gigantic, right? I was like, well, what's a little rain going to do to that? What's a little hurricane going to do to that, right? And she comes up with this cool way to defeat it. And I was like, okay, yeah. I, I often get annoyed with Storm as being, you know, the ultimate badass, but she was freaking badass. I was okay with yeah, it. Yeah, this was done really well because it didn't have a bunch of people saying, oh, Storm, you're so cool. It had to just do the cool ass thing. Yeah. And then, even and then, then the it turns out she out. wasn't quite right. She yeah, still, and then still the gate came. Yeah, and then the gate came out. And I was like, oh, shit, that's so smart. Like, yeah, that's so good. She's a badass, but she's not perfect. Yeah, and so she just opened the big portal and then the freaking demon horde shows up and. You know, she was kind of just, they were in a stalemate with just, you know, the, the, the you know, the Iraqi that had switched sides to Genesis. Like, yeah, now and, you and think, suddenly, oh, I don't this think is a big problem. They double the size of their forces, yes. but, you know, a, a sudden sneak attack by some, some real tough folks. Yeah. So I, I thought it was super cool. It felt really epic. And I was like, is this it? No, I want more. Like, <laughs> let me see what now, happens. I, I looked really carefully at that last panel and there's, one character who we, we don't see there, and that'll be Apocalypse. Now, he's lurking in the background of all of this. We know he has another seed, and so I, we got to see him soon, right? And whose side he's going to be on, what his whole ideology is going to do in this fight. Yeah. Well, he's it's against Genesis. I, I, this has got to be like the writers of Rowan showing up, right, in Lord <laughs> of the Rings. Kind of the opposite, but yeah. I just sure. have this feeling of like another... No, no, no. When Apocalypse, oh, when Apocalypse shows up. Yeah, yeah okay. I feel like another gate's going to open as... You know the Brotherhood's getting smashed, and then Apocalypse will show up and uh, turn the turn the tide. That's what I'm hoping, at least. But regardless, it's cool. It's super cool, and I was like, I'm on board. This is fun. I'm enjoying it's this. Bits where, like we're doing it, is all these opportunities to say, well, this could happen or that could happen, or waiting for this. And that's one of my favorite things in, in these X books is those opportunities to speculate what might come next. I also say the there's a few bits we didn't really totally hit on yet. The the stuff with the Fisher King and how yeah, he's going to I'm going to go into all those flashbacks next. Okay. All right. I'll wait for that then. Okay. Well, let's do that now. So uh, uh, the device that gets us into these flashbacks has to do with Fisher King's recent merger with what's left of, you call him Zylo, I think. No, Zylo, he was a historian, kind of made up of worms and bugs and creepy crawlies. And he's now kind of, he was damaged in the fight with uh, uh, Ornos. And he's now kind of merged with Fisher King. He communicates with Fisher King via the King's own memories, which is a little weird, a little, little hard to understand, but, you know, it's, it's Araco. They do weird things. And over the course of this issue, we see four separate snapshots from the Fisher King's early life, all, having, all taking place in those abyssal prisons. So the first one, uh, the kid Fisher King loses his name. He's already in prison. We don't really know how he got there. Maybe his parents are anti-Genesis dissidents, something like that. Uh, we don't we don't know who his, who his folks are. He visits this really gross-looking creature, looks super cool and gross on the page, called Azazeth, I'm going to go with, who is just like a brain with teeth. Looks super gross. That's a really great job by uh, artist uh, Yildare Chenar here, just to make it look completely off-putting. And this is some kind of psychic creature who can like, kill with its mind. And I guess this is where the Fisher King has this creature. It says, here's the quote, cut away my past, my name, scar my thoughts until they become unreadable. So I guess this is like, it takes all his past away from him, including his name. But is he now invulnerable to the telepaths and the omnipaths? Is that what we're getting here? Yeah, they say something about how the fact that he has no, like, no mutant gifts and no memory, that he doesn't really register. On, in any sort of psychic detection, which seems like a really lame <laughs> skill set, but that's what he's got, as far as I can tell. Yeah, he's kind of like a blank spot to the scanning, I guess, which, if you're going to be a rebel inside a prison, would be a useful thing to have. He already, he already didn't have a, uh, a a weapon, it says. Even as a little kid before this incident, it's not like he has some sort of a, a cool power that he lost. Uh, scene number two, the teenage Fisher King meets his wife-to-be. So he's 15 now. I'm not sure how this prison works. There are individual cells, but there's also some prisoners just kind of 
wander around inside the prison. I don't know how it works. It kind of reminds me of uh, a war world in D.C., where like the whole place is a prison, but there's also like prisons within the prison. So he's he's unhappy here in prison, as you might imagine. He's going to try to assassinate Tarn uh, when he's stopped by the young woman who will become his wife. She is Sora of the Spirit Flame. Her wife is, excuse me, Sora's sister. I'm going to bungle all these names, all these S's and Z's. Sora's sister is Sizza of the Smoke. Smoke and fire. Okay, makes That's sense. That's awful. And she will be mother of Weaponless Zen and the Blessedly Estless Cora of the Burning Heart. Yeah. So that's this is how this family comes together. So that's, I that's didn't realize neat. that they were the children of Fisher King. Yep, absolutely. Yep, it's a whole uh, the whole uh, whatever that little shadow council is called is like a basically a family situation. Uh, so scene number three, uh, jump ahead thirty years. The middle aged Fisher King plots against Genesis. He's he's forty five now. He's married, and they've had those two children. And this is a meeting of the oh, the night seats. That's what this group is called. We've got Fisher King, holder of the seat of nothing. His wife, Zora, holder of the seat of nobody, and her sister, Sizza, holder of, holder of the seat of nowhere. They are meeting in the cell of Solemn. Oh, so many S's. Uh, a character <laughs> we've mostly seen as a Wolverine antagonist. Uh, yeah. So they're, they're planning here and plotting. They're, there's like a lot of the, the big bads, Iska and the horsemen are going to be away, and they have this plan. Uh, it seems like a hopeless plan, but as the Fisher King says, to be of Araco is to fight even without hope. So. They don't really think they're going to win, but they're going to fight anyway. Very, very Iraqo thing. Anything to add about this scene? I think it was pretty straightforward other than my horrible stumbling over all the names. Yeah, I, I really don't like Solemn. I guess I'll say that. It, it. I don't think you're supposed to, but he just seems like such a douche. I think he's all right in these small doses. He's. We know he's here in this prison. He murdered, uh, who was it? He murdered somebody. The, somebody's husband. I think... You know who I think he is? If I were to Who's do that? like a live action casting, okay, I think he's Post Malone. Uh, he just has that <laughs> attitude and personality. I, I would not be shocked if he's also got a hip hop career on the side. Could be. Could be. Oh, oh he, I see here. He's in prison for killing War's husband, Bracken. So he's kind of, he, he swings every possible way. So he seduced her husband and then killed him. And I guess he can, they can't really punish him because he has that adamantium skin. But yeah. he kind of agrees to remain imprisoned as long as he lives in prison in luxury. Yeah. So that's why you get this real decadent, kind of gross, nasty feeling about him. Yes. It's on purpose. And I think uh, Al Ewing does a better job with this than I think we saw in the, the, the Wolverine book. He's not cleaning up those plates on the floor either. You know that. <laughs> He'd be a bad roommate. You don't want yes. to share an apartment with Solomon. <laughs> It'd be up all night. The noise would be horrible. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Number four, the final flashback scene. Just one day after the third flashback scene, up, yeah, they got caught. Uh, I don't think they even got to carry out their plan. Somebody told on them. Somebody found out. The married couple are, are chained up at the mercy of the horsemen, and uh, sister-in-law Sizza, she's she's out of here. She's the one who has those souped-up nightcrawler-type teleportation powers, so she just, you know, she up and ran. The horsemen are about to punish the conspirators by killing their children. Oof, awful. It'd be, you know, of course, Cora and zen but zora volunteers take punishment on herself and horseman famine kills her by sucking all the moisture out of her body while the rest of her family is there watching her turn into a skeleton really nasty what's kind of interesting here is young zen is not happy with her father presumably for letting her their mother die instead of himself and i wonder if we're going to see that issue show up again in the current day time period it feels like it's here on purpose don't you think yeah definitely it's like the last panel of that page, right? Of her yeah, looking we, at we him, see her and condemning face, him. We see her looking at her dad, and what I forget what she says, but it's it's not uh, it's not just nice. calls him a weakling. A weakling, sure. And for an Iraqi to call somebody a weakling, that's those are fighting words. So yeah, that's a, a busy issue. I'm, I'm psyched to finally see what the abyssal prisons were like. Uh, there's a lot of story to get across, and Yildare Chinar keeps everything flowing and emotionally exciting. Doesn't get a lot of room for splash panels. There's just too much to do. But yeah, I think like you mentioned, the bit where he gets to show off that sea monster and when it comes up out of the ocean, and then I think the one splash page when the point of the iceberg gets dropped through its skull looks really super cool. I like the structure, the back and forth with the flashbacks and the flashbacks being motivated by, by Zylo. That was cool. And yeah, there's so much I'm really looking forward to. 
especially the return of Apocalypse. And I got to say, we've said this before, but I'm going to say it again, is I'm really impressed that this whole society, the Iraqi, have have become an interesting kind of history point for me. There's like enough there that it is engaging, but not too much that it's overwhelming. And I care about all these characters and their kind of, you know, side plot. Yeah, early on in X of Ten's kind of time period, they all seem kind of interchangeable, but uh, the writers, and especially Al Ewing, are, are making them individual and yet making the society of them feel like a whole, like they fit together, but they still have their own personalities. Very well done. So yeah, I, I like this issue a whole lot. I'm going to call this an 8.8 out of 10. Probably, we'll find out, maybe my favorite book <laughs> of the week. Yeah, I kind of expected that. You put up a poll and I, you know, I went with my emotional reaction to answer it, but this was good. I definitely need five in my mind. It's just a really solid book, and I'm looking forward to seeing the, the next issue for sure. On our Slack, and, and why wouldn't you be? Yeah, I just I learned how to put up a poll on Slack. There's a command, so I decided to play with that and I put put up a little book of the week week poll, and I voted for this issue. Ruben voted for something else. We'll get to in a little. The bit. The one you'll yell at me about. I went with my heart, <laughs> <laughs> but. I did like this. This was this was really good. And if there was like an X-Men book that I was to tell people to read this week, this would be the one. I, I would agree. Uh, it's not. I mean, every book they say is someone's first comic book. This should oh, probably yeah, don't not read be this. Is, this is your first. <laughs> yeah, it, you'd be a little confused. But yeah, nothing for people will make who have been reading uh, all this stuff, including all of X-Men Red and X of Tens and going back. There's a lot of cool bits. All right. Jumping forward to, oh, maybe maybe this is Ruben's favorite book of the week. Maybe he went with his heart is going to vote for X-Force number 44, The Chronicles of Colossus. Uh, written by Ben Percy, art by Robert Gill, colors by Guru Effects, letters by Joe Caramagna, design by good old Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So issue 43 flashed us back to the end of the gala. This issue jumps forward to basically the same time period as most of the other Fall of X books. The cover does feature Deadpool, as do the original solicitations. Like, if you read the solicits, Deadpool should be doing stuff in this book. So, we know he's really busy over an Uncanny Avenger. So, this was either masterful deception on the part of DC, or, or they changed their minds and, and Wade was written out at the last minute. Now, as we all surely recall, most members of the X-Force team are captives now of Mikhail Raspian. That would be Colossus, Kid Omega, Wolverine, Young Laura version, and Omega Red. Not a lot happens with them this issue. This is primarily a Domino and Sage story with a B plot about Mikhail and Chronicle. Also, the next time that I spell Chronicler correctly on my first attempt will be the first. I put H's and C's and sometimes K's all over it. That my I did my uh, my document has all these little wiggly red bits in it because I can never spell it. So Domino has gone to the Savage Land last issue. And that's where she learned that something was really wrong with Colossus. No kidding. She was able to warn Sage, and only Sage, just in time to keep her from following Colossus through the gate to Rasputin's headquarters and, you know, get in trouble. So the two of them, plus Black Tom, are working out of the X-Force mobile base, quote, somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. Now, here's my first little complaint, or point to mention at least, conversation point. I'm not sure why this Krakoa-powered base and Domino's Krakoa-powered gauntlet continued to work post-Krakoa when, for instance, the pods that held the children of the vault stopped working on the Gallon Knight. So, is there an explanation, you think? Or is that just writers making their own decisions and not really talking to each other? Yeah, this will never be addressed. I, but that's a good point. I didn't actually think about that. I just kind of went with it, which is what I bet they expect you to do. But yeah, again, this, this is going to be work. my argument that maybe Children of the Vault is kind of its own thing. <laughs> maybe. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, there is uh, the other thing is, I don't know why this team doesn't reach out to, I don't know, the team in X-Men or in Uncanny. I mean, one of their members is on the Uncanny Avengers. Nobody calls up Iceman and says, hey, let's work together. There's a throwaway line or two here about how Domino and Sage decide to concentrate on rescuing the rest of X-Force first. But still, you'd think they'd want some contact with the other groups. So what, what do you have to say about that? I guess I'm, I'm a little okay with that piece doesn't bother me so much. I can imagine, you know, that splinter cell is kind of hard to reach. And I think in one of the issues last week, they talked about how everything is being compartmentalized so that if any particular X group gets taken down, it's not going to compromise the resistance writ large. I, I guess if that's the case, I'd like a, a little more work done on panel convincing them. Just, just a little. So we start off with a, a pretty neat action scene. 
Domino breaking into a Moscow bathhouse to confront this Russian mobster who's a known associate of uh, Mikhail Rasputin. It's, it's a fun scene. It's, it's interesting to see that Orcus is also powerful and popular in Russia. Yeah, that so part Or- surprised me. Yeah, I guess I would think that, you know, Russia specifically tries to not do anything to coordinate with the rest of the world, and both in the real world and, and in the 616. But uh, I guess we're just supposed to think here that your Orcus is just universally beloved and in power kind of everywhere. I'm okay, but it's it's notable. Or at least the average Russians have now capitulated. Maybe. I don't know what, what yeah, kind we of don't really get Mikhail to see how this things. connects to the government there. I mean, for a while, we knew that Dracula was in Russia. That was a, a plot line. I don't think we ever saw that resolved, but that's a whole other thing. So here, Domino catches this Russian mobster guy. Uh, he has this this ring that appears to be charged with Mikhail's power. You can tell because it has floating green rectangles on it, and that's like the the symbol for, oh, it, it's Mikhail's power, which I don't really understand his power. Some sort of energy manipulation, teleportation, maybe? Yeah, it's, it's like another... Things. It, this part annoyed me. I was like, okay, thank you, Ben Percy. You're, you already got me pissed about Chronicler and not understanding what he does, and you're just going to do the same thing with Mikhail, but okay. Well, I think Mikhail's vagueness has, is a long running, running thing. It's not It's not new. So the only way that Domino gets the ring is by chopping off the guy's finger, which seems like some gratuitous Ben Percy leftover from Wolverine kind of violence. Yeah. We really I also thought that, that was a little goofball. I'm like, it's a ring. You take it off, right? <laughs> but <laughs> whatever. Mean, if it's how long has he been wearing this ring? You hear about people like wear their wedding rings for decades and decades and it's hard to get off, but you'd think this would be a, a more, anyway, doesn't matter. Chopped off his finger. We're not going to see him again. They got the ring. So the next scene is back in that underwater headquarters. All about character stuff. And it's pretty good. Uh, ben Percy reminds us that uh, he rem- remembers that Sage had a drinking problem for about five minutes. She's into exotic teas now, which I can get behind as I drink a lot of it when prepping this podcast. Next time my wife asks me about <laughs> why I'm such a caffeine addict and be like, well, this is how I dealt with my alcoholism. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that won't lead to any follow-up questions at all. I don't know. That would just be just fine. I just idea. thought that was really funny. I was like, I don't think it works that way, but, but good on you. Whatever works, Sage. I mean, she, she she became an alcoholic pretty quick, and she got over it pretty quick. So good for her. Uh, so we see Black Tom, who's speaking of himself in the singular now, since he's no longer linked to Krakoa. The team put this like magic Mikhail ring inside the, a candy no-place tumor, which we're told can cause cancer, but, quote, only through prolonged exposure, which got to be an attempt to make some retroactive sense of Moira having cancer back in X Lives, X Deaths, yes. and Inferno, right before she became a robot. I actually really liked that part because it, I, this is totally a retcon, but it was one that was needed. It was so noxious, like when she just was like, oh, now I've got cancer, and that's what. Yeah, me and Chris spent a long to be time angry. trying to make sense of that. And it, it's kind of too little, too late, but it's something. It's kind of wacky that she, like, I mean, I guess they don't really know everything about these, <laughs> the society they've built, right? But she, like, put herself in the no place, which is kind of funny. She yeah, caused her I, own I guess cancer. Maybe from now on, these no place tumors should come with a mutant surgeon general. Yes. Who, who would be the mutant surgeon general, do you think? Oh, that's a good question. Probably Cecilia Reyes. Yeah. That's got to be the best guess. Or this, there's Healer. Isn't that guy's the one of the Morlocks just called Healer? Yeah. Two, two of them. <laughs> they, they take turns. Okay, anyway. So the final scene takes us back to Mikhail. He wants Chronicler to shift his efforts, right? Give up controlling Colossus and go over to maybe one of the Orcus higher-ups. No names are mentioned here, but one of the documents that he gives to Chronicler definitely has a picture of Dr. Devo. He's very, you know, with his weird eyeglasses, he's he's very uh, recognizable. And this swap would make sense since there's really no more Krakoa anymore and Colossus is already right there. So if you're going to use this guy, Switch him over to Orcus, who seems to be in control of everything. Now, Chronicler explains his powers don't work like that. He can't just change target on a dime. It's it's an artistic thing. The story has to make sense, have internal logic. If he just stops writing for his current subject, Colossus could you know drop dead. I don't know how intended it is, but I can almost read this as a metaphor for editorial or corporate meddling in comic book stories. Uh, <laughs> that's how I'm reading it. I'm, I'm thinking a little bit of Ms. Marvel Ooh, here. I don't know yeah. how intended that is, but that's what it makes me think of. Do you, do you think that was intentional? You think I, this didn't, is- I didn't go that route with it. I was just finally, I, I was satisfied that they've finally given us a bit of an explanation for why he can't just mind whammy like literally everybody. Because that was driving me nuts. I'm like, 
you've got this guy that can influence other people, right, to do basically whatever, and Mikhail's trying to take over Krakoa. It seems like with that kind of power, you would very easily be able to, you know, manipulate lots yeah, of people to cause what you want. A new question, because uh, he says he needs to really get to know a person before using his power on them. So Mikhail is going to have Colossus kidnap someone from Orcus so that Chronicler has a new character to work with. But makes me think, so how did Chronicler get, get to, to know. know Colossus? Yeah. As far as we saw on panel, Colossus just started acting weird kind of out of nowhere. So I wonder if we'll ever get that story where, you know, when they used to hang out. Well, they're both Russian. Maybe they were... <laughs> and Russia's a small country, <laughs> it's a <big> right? Place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys don't know each other, right? So, I don't know. I mean... I, I, I would love to see that explained because I, I did think that. I was like, okay, we know how your power works now. When did you guys um, connect? And I also hope that it's not as simple as here's the pile of books to read and that's all you need to do. Because he seems to think that's not, he kind of tells Mikhail, like, that's not really how it works. Yeah, but I, I like the interplay here where it's like the boss says, I just want you to do this thing. And like the technician, the artist says, it doesn't work like that. I need to get motivated. I need to make it make sense. And so, yeah, it's almost like a like a management versus the artisan kind of a, a feeling, too. I, I thought that was character-wise well done. Because you can see why both of them want the thing they want and why they fundamentally just aren't going to see the world the same way. That's pretty funny, though. I love this meta idea that you just came up with, this meta commentary. <laughs> so this is Ben Percy getting shoved by Marvel editorial. It could be. You have to use this character. <laughs> <laughs> so who do you think is the character he <laughs> is it is Omega know. Red? I kinda like the is idea. that well, it? I mean Deadpool's, he's like I don't know what to do with Omega Deadpool Red. seems to have been removed from the book out of nowhere. Maybe it's that. Anyway, that's that's where our issue ends. And yeah, I had a pretty good time reading this. I I've, I've already made my complaints about lack of continuity, I'm not gonna rehash that. Uh Robert Gill draws a nice action scene. Once again, I want to see more backgrounds of the Mikhail scenes. But maybe Percy hasn't just given Gill a description of location, or maybe those headquarters really is just one big, nondescript, featureless void. Because the whole background there, it's just plain black or plain purple. Nothing else. Uh, one other thing we just didn't mention is Domino, after she gets the ring, she gets kind of chased by one of the you know Wolverine skeletons oh, that right, have been right, turned right. into Omeka. Yeah, they're and called Yeah, it stabs her, and, but she gets away, and Sage sends, like I guess, a ship to pick her up. But what I want to say about this is, it to me, it gave me a lot more drama, right? Because we don't have me in Resurrection. I was like, oh, crap, this thing's after you. So, you know, kudos to them for, for adding drama back into yeah, some of the stakes these are bad. books. I did wonder in that scene why her luck powers weren't really doing anything. But then she does get rescued at the last second. So maybe that's 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 the luck doing anything. I also liked that she escapes kind of by grappling hooking up out through a skylight and the Wolverine thing can't just immediately get to her. That worked for me, because I'm like, yeah, it's a big, heavy-ass Yeah, we see her using thing. that uh, Krakoan gauntlet in some interesting, creative ways here, which we haven't seen as much lately, so that was that was fun to watch. Uh, yeah, Overall, uh, there's a lot of cool things happening here. Looking forward to seeing where it goes. Yeah, a couple of nitpicks here and there, but overall, but a solid 7.5 out of 10. Yeah, I'm exactly there. This is my favorite X-Force book in a long time, and you know I'm ready for this to be a good story again, so keep up with this, this storyline. It seems pretty pretty fun. Okay, we have just one more book to go, and uh, if you've been keeping track, you probably know what Ruben thinks of this book. Uh, this is Children of the Vault, number two of four, Lay Your Hammer Down, written by, I'm going to call him Dennis Camp, art by Luca Maresca, colors by Carlos Lopez, letters by Corey Pettit, and designed once again by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So the first thing I got to say here is there is just no friggin' way this story is taking place in the same universe as anything else called Fall of X. <laughs> it just, you, I can't make it work. In this story, yes. the children yes. have taken over all superhero duties on the planet. They fight off a Shi'ar invasion, zombies from that other Marvel zombie universe, uh, interdimensional horrors. They've sent up dozens of brand new cities, tomorrow towns, all over every continent. Yes. The UN puts them in charge of like solving all the problems of the world. Uh, Orcus is almost nowhere to be seen, uh, and the children are stunned to find out that there's any mutants anywhere on Earth when every other book shows them to still be, you know, pretty common. So, so yeah. Adam, can you explain to me, can you no-prize it, how and when <laughs> is this happening compared to like, X-Men? Yeah, that's the biggest problem with this, is it's an interesting, fun idea that just doesn't fit in with what else is going on in the 
comics. Which sucks, because I like everything in this story, but I agree with you, it's not what's going on. The only thing I'll say is, we have the same problem with Avengers right now. I don't know if you're reading that, but... Uh, so, Avenger, the current Avengers run, which, you know, you think Avengers is like a flagship title. There's, a, I guess, an extra-dimensional race that shows up in some giant city above Earth and has, like, basically killed everybody, <laughs> all the heroes and slaved the whole planet. And you don't see that in any other book either, which makes me laugh because I'm like, this is flagship story. That, that is bad, but if you look at the cover of Children of the Vault, it even has the Fall of X trade dress on it. So yeah. Marvel is telling us this is all part of the same uh, overarching story. So I, I, I would hold this to a, a higher standard than like Avengers. But wow. it, it does feel like I, maybe, maybe at the end there'll be some sort of time loop undo thing that shows, oh, this all happened after the other books, or maybe before yeah. something. Maybe they'll give me something, but for right now, I can't come up with any way that this is happening in the same universe. I mean, that'd be cool. You've got the two time travelers and Bishop and Cable, right? Yeah, and any we Cable get and plot. Bishop story, weird time stuff is always on the table. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I, I would like or it if they did that. maybe they're all inside uh, those same kind of pods that they put the children of the vault in, and it's all a... All that the was the other thought that I had, was maybe we think that they really got out, but in reality, they just kind of, they woke from one dream into another dream. Mm-hmm. Well, for right now, we're assuming, we're gonna we're just going to put that aside and just call this the universe we're talking about right now. And, and on its own terms, I agree with you. This is a really good story. And probably un, not unrelated, the children kind of come across like a version of the Eternals. And, you know, you and I are both suckers for a good Eternal story, so no surprise we'd like it. I'm a big fan of just just a lot of like the some of the interesting villain ideas, right? Where it's like they evolve past just sort of beat up villain, you know, yeah, conquesting. It's, it's not your basic mustache twirling, I just, I'm bad because I'm bad. They have their own kind of internal logic, and you can see why they would why they would do what they do. Okay, I did so want, before, I want to go on a total tangent. That's why we're here. <laughs> Page one, and this is probably what won me over is you know when we get uh, Martillo here, and he's standing outside, and he's looking into a drum and bass nightclub. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, whoever this right this Dennis Camp is, maybe we'd be buddies because That's growing up, that was that was my scene. I was a <laughs> I was a drum and bass like raver, so into that and i was like who are they listening to and then i was like looking at the graffiti i'm like is he trying to name draw you know anything that recognized but unfortunately not but oh, i'd be at that no. party i'm probably in this scene <laughs> you're one of those little pink silhouettes that we can't quite make yes out. but you're there yes. absolutely yep. uh, yeah so yeah this issue opens with a spotlight on martillo 131 uh, he carries what looks like a giant geologist hammer you know pointy on one one end flat on the other and martillo is in fact spanish for hammer so not really all that creative a name there in the vault. Uh, he's using his x-ray vision, you say, to like spy on people dancing in the club. And we get the idea that this is not at all something that would happen inside the vault, right? The vault is very regimented, totalitarian. They have a purpose. Uh, and this kind of just wild, emotional partying is really attractive to him. Yeah. But he doesn't but get also, the- mm-hmm, Go ahead. I, I say also just, again, just like I like the idea of this is in his mind, like this is very primitive. It's sort of like if if we were to go, uh, I guess a good example is like, hey, you go to, oh, gosh, this is going to be canceled. How do I say this? <laughs> you go you go to see like a traditional cultural event, right? And some of it's really cool. You're just like, oh, man, I, I really feel the emotion of that. And it like really pulls you in. But it's not the world that you're a part of, right? Like you're a 21st century yeah, person. Like maybe that, uh, that movie, The Northman, I think it was called, that showed, uh, you know, ancient Viking type people. Maybe even pre-Viking, I'm not sure, but it showed like the world as they saw it and their view of honor and violence and the gods. And like some people really didn't like it because it seemed so foreign to a modern way of thinking. And other people really liked it because it was so foreign. I think that's kind of like what we're seeing here. I just like the idea of this character having in his mind this being like also the past. And we also get like a, oh, the bishop and Cable are like time travelers. In a way, he's a time traveler too, right? We don't necessarily think of the children as time travelers, but yeah, one one way they kind of from. are. Yeah. So yeah, while he's kind of daydreaming about uh, drum and bass music, he's attacked by our duo of Cable and Bishop, who pretty quickly subdue him and then body slide him back to the Cable Cave for question. Yeah. There's a bit here where Bishop talks about Cable having lost a step. I don't know if that's going to play out. I don't know that I really saw that in the art, but it is a thing that Bishop makes a point of saying. 
So here the two characters split up and go on separate missions. I'm going to talk about Bishop's first, which is he's going to go and retrieve a whole bunch of guns from one of Cable's secret weapons caches, this one at the old Xavier Mansion. Now, this is the one time this issue that we see Orcus. Now, they're just some basic goons guarding the mansion without even any identifiable logos in the art, but they are called Orcus in the narration boxes. So I almost wonder if they added the word Orcus in late in the process just to try to make it seem more connected. Who knows? Well, I like this idea of, uh, this didn't seem like a dumb idea for Orcus, right? Station yeah, so some that goons at the, at the old Xavier now, Institute. Now, they weren't there when Kitty went over and got her swords from the mansion, but I think that was, again, Pretty first, immediate. this is a different universe. Yeah. But other than that, <laughs> uh, that was right on the night of the gala, and you could make you could make the argument that Orcus wouldn't have been there yet. So I think we could make that part. Now, I would, would think that Cable has weapons scattered all over the friggin' earth, right? Because he's Cable, and that's what he does. So that Bishop would have to go to this particular one where Orcus is, but it does He give- just doesn't like Cable's guns. And it, they already went to a Cable's secret base, right? Apparently, he's Not like, yeah, there. you know, I got the right guns. I got to go get my guns. But I'm okay with it because <laughs> it, it's a cool scene. Uh, we see Bishop using his energy absorption powers as camouflage, right? talking about which wavelengths to reflect, which wavelengths to absorb. And it's, it's in, nicely explained. Again, it's, it's the rule of cool, right? If it's, if it's cool enough, you don't have to worry about it. And, and it, for me, it was cool enough. And I don't I think was super ever cool because powers like this before, but no, I like it. and that's what I really liked because Bishop, his power is very basic in my mind. And I never thought of this as being a way you could use it, which is a great secondary use of your power. Yeah, and very well explained there by Dennis Campbell. I don't know if we'll ever see any other writer pick up on this, but they should. It's a good idea. So And he's not actually invisible, which still makes it, you know, tense, right? Like he's gotta still run behind people. He, they could see him, but as long as they don't see him, he's not triggering alarms and cameras and whatnot. Yeah, you can almost imagine what the video game version of this would be like, right? Some sort of a stealth game. So that's Bishop's thing. And this brings me to a really odd scene that I did not at all understand on first read through. This is, this is what Cable's doing. Now, in the physical world, Cable is questioning Martillo about the message, that, that semiotic virus we learned about at the end of last issue, the one yes. that makes everyone on Earth love the children and keep repeating, become the future. Meanwhile, in the mental realm, Cable is psychically attacking Martillo to steal everything he knows about the children, the layout, access codes to their cities, all that stuff. So this second realm is shown on panel as Cable trying to storm a citadel and having to fight his way past a giant Greek marble statue to get there. Yeah. Uh, Which is, did you understand why this particular metaphor? Is there like nuances I'm missing missing, or they just needed to physicalize the, the mental attack? Yeah, I, I thought it was just that. If if you've read anything about there being a really good reason for this, it'd be news to me. I mean, we've got the statue with the hammer, so I was like, okay, this is how you see yourself. It, it was a little weird because it's like not doesn't really look like him. This looks Greek, I guess. It looks like a, a like a Greek marble statue, except he's holding the the giant Martillo hammer. And if they're so futuristic, I'm surprised they would call back mentally if this is from his mind to ancient Greece. But it, it looks cool. And it does, again, this reminds me of things we saw in in the, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? The Eternals, where they have these mental battles and they need to show it physically somehow. Yeah. So it gets even odder at the end of the scene when Cable, in, in the mental realm here, mental Cable, he grows to giant size, defeats the statue, and then uses the statue's hammer to bust open the citadel. And uh, what does he find inside that citadel, Ruben? What, what is in there, I guess, representing all this wonderful data information that he wants. <laughs> I, I didn't get this scene, it's, but it's like it's, it's like ballerina. a ballerina. Yeah. <laughs> so Teeny I didn't understand. Pink tutued ballerina. Yeah. So it's like this is all the information about Orcus or this is how he sees himself. I, I don't I really don't know. understand. And then it. what does Cable yeah. do with this ballerina? Eats it. He eats her. He holds her above his, his mouth and just like drops her in and I guess that's how he gets the data. I don't know. It it looks kind of cool. But I, I feel like there's a level of metaphor that I, I'm just missing. I don't know. But that's how that's how Cable gets gets the information. And meanwhile, in the physical world, we see Martillo like fighting off the mental attacks. He's foaming at the mouth, bleeding from his nose and eyes, and gets these nasty boils all over his face. 
uh, Cable gets him to admit that the message is a plan to subdue and kill off all of humanity. Or they expect that like 99% of the world's population will be dead in about six months. I mean, no big surprise. We kind of expected the children weren't here to create a real utopia. And at the well, end, I, I, go ahead. I kind of laughed about that part too, which is interesting. So we get some kind of flashback to you know another generation of the children inside their vault. And they're discussing, like, what are we going to do when we... Oh, the data pages, yeah. Yeah, when we come out of the vaults. And there's a faction that's like, well, we're just going to conquer and kill everyone, right? And replace them. But that was their original old plot, right? That's like the traditional point of view. And then Serafina's perspective is like, no, we're, we're not, you know, brutal conquistadors anymore. We're, we're going to convert and level up humanity, right? We'll let them join our society. And so in their mind, this was supposed to be like the... The peaceful way, right, or the right. So way I don't of- think Serafina wanted them to join up. There was somebody else who wanted them to interbreed, and this, this is a really cool data page. And it's one of those pages that you don't have to read to understand the story, but if you go back and check it out, it adds some real texture to it. And once again, huge, huge Eternals vibes, right? This is just like their Unimod, right out of a child. Well, anyways, uh, to, to finish my thought is she basically was like, "We'll use this mind." message right to kind of like subjugate people that way and it, it sounded very humane until you get to the page of martillo being like oh yeah well we only expect one percent of the population to survive i was like how humane right like the options are kill everyone or kill 99 percent of the people <laughs> yeah so one other mind is just wipe out all life on earth and start over another idea is to use humans as, as slave labor to make the earth like a starship uh, and yes, Serafina, who is, she calls her plan gentle pacification with the children, quote, coming as saviors, filling the void left by the mutants and exploiting the appalling inequality endemic to human society, which is kind of the big asterisk there to that is and kill 99% of the people ex- exploiting. Yeah. So <laughs> you could draw plenty of historical parallels in the real world to, you know, real world radicals cynically exploiting people like this. Yeah. Again, outside the scope of this particular podcast, but you know, think back to any revolution where do the do the revolutionaries really mean to help people, or are they just using the situation to their own benefit? Yeah, so, or yeah. or just yeah. I mean, that's a good point. This is sort of like imperialism, right? I will bring our religion to your your savage I mean, nations and- or communist revolutions, depending on what your own ideology is. You can make this fit. Kind of anything. So yeah, some some cool texture, a glimpse, and all this is happening in the vault in between when the people escaped from those pods and went back in after that moment and before when the children made themselves known again to humanity. And so for us, or for people in 616, that was days or weeks, but to them it was like, what, a, a thousand years, a million years? Yeah, yeah a lot really of time. A long time. So this generation is a whole new generation evolved after the ones who went back in. Kind of neat. So yeah, that is pretty much the issue. Cable and Bishop get back together at the end. They now have Martillo's information and also from Bishop what I would call a Liefeldian amount of weapons. Yes. And they saunter off to attack the city. So that's where we're going yeah. next. Yep. And even that pit, that last picture of Cable all, you know, wearing yeah. all the guns and everything, definitely <laughs> that's an homage to it's to it's Rob. intentionally over the top, you know, all the giant guns and the bandoliers of shells. And the pouches, and it, it's just intentionally silly in kind of an awesome way. And as you may have noticed or not noticed, all their feet are off panel. No feet being seen. But once again. <laughs> so perfect. Yeah. I, I also want to say I, I, I finished reading Messiah War recently. And but maybe another reason why I really love this issue, like that really helps you understand like how uncomfortable this relationship is is between the two of them. I still need like, to get there, get to read that someday. Yeah, they have a they have a shared goal here, but like, yeah, they basically were at each other's throats and not too not too far in the past. Nice. So yeah, I enjoyed this book quite a lot. At least, you know, once I drop my continuity kid objections. But whatever world is happening in, I want to see what happens. And I still have like a one percent hope that something's gonna wrap it up to make it all fit in with everything else. Ninety nine percent no. Uh, this series is, you don't have to follow this series if all you want to know is what's happening to the main Fall of X story. Doesn't seem connected, but I think it's really good for what it is. If you like the eternal stuff, if you like past children's stories, you should really read this. I'm going to give this a nice solid uh, 8.5 out of 10. Wow, nice. Yeah, it same here. It me up a little bit. 
good. 8.5 for me as well. I just, I uh, obviously, I always gush about the children. So having a children's story that actually elevates the kind of thoughts behind them has made me very happy because they're the, the after the first run of the children i think there were subsequent runs where it was kind of less interesting yeah, and hickman made them a little better like but that where the, they have one great story to set them up and then they kind of become punching bag goons where the, the children are better than that yeah and i i really appreciate that they're really highlighting that you know this version in this series is not going to be the one we see in the future it doesn't have to be right so the next time they come back, somebody else can put their own spin on it because you know that's it's the way they work. They another, can go back in the vault and they have one of their thinking arguments and they have a new philosophy and they can be a whole different group. I'll say very last thing when we're looking at the Martillo stuff and this you know battle of the mind things. Mm-hmm. I read an article recently about um, psychologists studying or maybe sociologists studying like uh, the American male's obsession with like Roman culture. Oh, that is a <laughs> thing going on on the internet this past yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, maybe that's what this is about, because, you know, Martio sees himself as kind of a, a Greek-Roman statue, even though he's obviously of a Latin American descent. And then... Latin American? It's right there in the name. Yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, maybe it's a kind of poking fun at that idea, like, oh, beneath your, you know, want to be a Spartan mentality, like, you're actually just a little ballerina inside. <laughs> I'm not even going to touch that one. I'm going to leave that as as a, a, an interesting thought experiment for everyone to ponder. Yeah. Okay. To me, this is a fun series. This is like what I think it's exactly the same thing that Astonishing Iceman is. Like you don't need it to. Hmm. You definitely don't need to try to fit this into like what's in, going in, on. In that but, sense, they're the same. In every other sense, very very different. Yeah, but just there's there's fun ideas that they're playing with, and I I can forgive the like this isn't the same universe stuff. Especially if they fix it at the end. It would be really cool if they have like a time travel thing that explains why we don't see this elsewhere. We will see because we are halfway through the series. Uh, this is only a four issue series. All the other, all most at least of the other series are, are five issues. Yeah. So uh, next week, we finally get the first issue of Uncanny Spider-Man, which is the Nightcrawler book. That was supposed to come out a couple weeks ago. It got delayed for some unknown reason, but we're finally getting the first issue there. And then we're getting Uncanny Avengers number two, Dark X-Men number two, Alpha Flight number two, Wolverine number 37, which is features Hulk and the clone Marines, plus a couple books people might want to know about, but I don't think we'll cover here. You have Predator versus Wolverine number one, which is an out-of-continuity Ben Percy crossover. Uh, and there's also an X-Men annual, but it's part of the cont- Contest of Chaos nonsense, so have nothing to do with any of this but there's a lot of books next week maybe we'll talk about all of them maybe we'll kick one or two to the following week we'll see what happens uh so i am gonna i have a recommended reading i'm gonna say if you're interested about mr clean who is that villain (laughs) coming up in iceman you should go read in the the app or in your long boxes uncanny x-men numbers 395 through 398 which is the origin and possibly death question mark of Mr. Queen. So that's where you can learn about him. So that's all I have to say uh, about this week's books. It was a, a strong week. Some, some. Uh, I don't think we had any stinker books. We had a six and everything else was, you know, seven, five and up. So we will certainly take that. Uh, but uh, out of curiosity, Ruben, what do you think our listeners might do yes. between now and our next podcast? It's the same thing I will do, which is read more X-Men comics. <laughs>